Welcome to this episode of Confidence Mastery. I am your host, Natalie Bailey. Today is a very, very special episode. We are joined by Joanna Hooper, who is an amazing person who I have met by being a part of a mastermind too. And we are, we are, we are part of a really nice community of women building better businesses. And I just want to thank you for being here, Joanna. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I like to have good conversations with people. And I know with what you do that people listening are really going to enjoy what you have to share. So would you just like to give people a bit of an insight into you and what you do and why you do it? Ooh, yes. And why I do it. That's an even better question. Um, so I am a range of things, but most predominantly I'm a leadership and performance coach working specifically uh, often with small business owners helping them build a team that they can rely on in order to grow their business and as you'll know my little strap line is grow your business without losing your sh1t i don't know if i'm allowed to swear i am allowed to swear oh that's fine do. okay so yes i try and help business owners to grow their business without losing their shit um I tend to work predominantly with people who suffer with a bit of confidence crisis. There's quite a lot of it out there. I'm sure that you've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm quite passionate about it because uh, I've always been a bit of a confidence fighter and it doesn't take much for me to lose my confidence. And I wish I'd had me in my corner when I was younger, because actually so many of the things in my life, when I look back, if only I'd had a bit more confidence, they might not have gone quite as catastrophic as they did, or they might have gone slightly differently, or I might have achieved even more than I did. So there is something for me about wanting to provide a service to other people that I didn't have when I was younger, which is this cheerleader, uh, confidant, advisor, um, second brain when you're stuck and looking at the wall because you can't think of anything else to do. You know, that kind of stuff. That's what I love to do, basically. I completely relate to that because I've often thought the same thing. I I wish I had me this time, you know, in the past. What was it that made you think, I wish I had me as I am now then? I think... um, So to give a bit of background, my first uh, 23 years in my career were in the Royal Navy. And um, it's quite a brash environment if you're not feeling especially confident. Mm. There's quite a lot of things that test your sense of self a lot. Everything from practical leadership exercises, obstacle courses. You know, if you're frightened of heights on an obstacle course, that's a a bit of a so-and-so. Uh, ability to run fast, jump high, everything that you can imagine, every test that you could possibly imagine is kind of there. And then you kind of dial up the pressure. So some of my backstory has been, you know, in very difficult circumstances, trying to perform at my best when inside my heart is hammering in my chest. Do you know Mm. what I mean? So this idea that there could have been somebody who was like feeling like this is normal. Uh, Here's some things you can do to manage that sensation, you know, state management, that kind of stuff. Uh, Here's some things you can try that makes this feel a bit more comfortable or even this career is not for you. Mm. You Even even one of those, you know. What made you join the, the Royal Navy? I basically left school with two crap A-levels at a time when going to university wasn't an option with two crap A-levels. Mm. Uh, my father had been in the Navy for uh, 30 years or something. So I knew about the Navy at least, you know, whereas many of us don't because they're out there somewhere. Um, and I just thought, well, well, I'll give that a go. I did not intend to stay 23 years. That is for oh, certain. That's amazing. I wanted to join the army. But at that point, they weren't, they weren't allowing women on the front line. No, indeed. And I completely understand the reasoning behind that. 
because if a woman <laughs> I do I don't I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it but I do understand that a man will often look after a woman if she's hurt or injured rather than fighting forward so that that was the reason that I was given that women weren't allowed on the front line then there was no like this isn't about equality this is about creating the best soldiers mm. and the best soldiers are going to go and fight and not look after the the woman that's hurt now whether that's right or wrong I don't know you know it's not a, a fighting machine is not going to but I think that's a different thing about community and building and supporting each other. And, but that, I, that was the reason that they, they yeah. gave it to me. So I was like, I, I want to go to the front line, give me a gun. <laughs> there's, pro- there's probably some psychological profiling is apparent there, isn't it? I don't care about that. I don't care about being a professional soldier. Can I just have a gun, please? Yeah. So I, I have a different point of view, right? So if you talk to any yeah. soldier, they will never leave a crewmate behind or a yeah. teammate behind regardless of the gender. So I think that natural human instinct to protect members of your team is kind of apparent regardless of gender. Um, So I never used to buy that excuse particularly. I can see how sometimes it compromises fighting spirits. It Mm. creates fissures where there doesn't need to be. You know, the minute you put boys and girls together in a room and close the lid, you know, funny old thing, uh, Mm. certain things happen that you probably are less useful. Um, But I don't think it's about, you know, if a man sees a woman injured, he's going to be more protective of her than a guy. I'm, okay. I'm not sure I buy that personally, but that's just my point of view. I, I'm not sure that I do now. Yes. Being 16, being 16 years old, being told that, I, I, I understand why I've all into that. But yes. now, having a very, very different view on the world, mm. I, I see how that may have been the slight level of manipulation and the mm. world has drastically changed. I then wanted to join the RAF okay. um, and be a pilot and then realised that actually that kind of level of being told what to do um, was not. <laughs> a bit too entrepreneurial for that. <laughs> yes. Although, ironically, I now am a huge advocate for disciplinary team. So <laughs> that's come full circle. What, what was the point? So you were in there 25 years. What was your role? What did you do? Ooh, really, it was really boring, actually. So it was, I was a logistics officer. So I was basically in charge of feeding people, paying people, clothing people, cash and banking services, fendering services, getting rid of rubbish alongside, uh, engineering spares, or I, I used to call it uh, bullets, blankets and beans. That's what I was in charge of. And it's fine. I mean, it's kind of boring, right? Because no, no soldier or, or armed force can can do its thing without logistics. If you've ever hear, heard any of the expressions, there's a famous one that says, uh, uh, amateurs talk tactics, uh, professionals talk logistics. So this idea that it doesn't matter how clever you want to be with the enemy, if you haven't got any food or bullets or anything like that, you ain't doing anything. Um, the, the only challenge was, and this is kind of speaks to the sense of resilience, is the minute a ship set sail, uh, you know, people get bored and fed up quite quickly. And the only things they have to complain about are food and money, uh, both of which were in my domain, you know. So it, <laughs> I took quite a lot of metaphorical, if not physical, beating at times for, yeah. you know, the quality of people's pay and quality of people's food. My favorite joke ever is the, ah, Pusser, I see you've had the blander out again, because they used to decide that the food was very bland. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so if you were at the receiving end of, not abuse, but for, for want of a better phrase, how did, what did that do for your morale? It depends. So um, we used to call it banter. Yes. Um, uh, and um, in some respects, <laughs> banter allows you to say some hard things in a way that don't punch people in the face. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but uh, there was an experience that happened to me recently, actually. So I left the Navy in 2014, and I recently caught up with one of my uh, girlfriends. We, you know, that was in in the Navy with me, yeah. and um, <laughs> I pitched up, and she said, "Oh, I see you've got the horse blanket on." I had like this, like um, like a part pashmina, part scarf, woolen. And yeah. clearly she thought it looked like a horse blanket. So she said, oh, I see you've got the horse blanket with you today. And I was really taken aback because I'd left that bantering environment. And I remember the time going, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what that's what we do. So it's a kind of, you know, you kind of get used to it. You get a bit inured to it. Uh, you know, it's a method of communication, rightly or wrongly, that gets certain things done. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do have to be a bit thick skinned at times. I think we find that transpires to the entrepreneurial space, too. Mm. what's um since leaving other than that like what what was that actually let's go let's tap back into what was the catalyst for leaving what for the for change mm. from that I got to the age of 40 and uh I I perceived I had a crossroads ahead of me um stay and see how far I could get in the navy or leave and see what else I was capable of and path see. b just seemed much more interesting and has it been interesting Oh, yeah. I've done far more growing in the last, what is it, eight years since I've left and done things I didn't think I was capable of. So if you'd have said to me when I was in the Navy, you're going to be running your own business in a couple of years time, Mm. I'd have gone, oh, no, I can't do that. I'm no bloody good at that kind of thing. I mean, you know, granted in our little um, uh, business mastermind, you know, sometimes that does come up that I don't know my ass from my elbow when it comes to running my business. Um, But yes, there are plenty of things that I didn't think I was capable of. And turns out I am. Give us an example. Um, uh, having sales conversations, you know, when I first uh, left the Navy, that, that was grubby. You don't talk about money. You don't Mm -hmm. ask for money. You certainly don't ask for money for you and your services and your capabilities. Um, uh, my Ted talk, um, standing in front of a group of people I didn't know and not briefing. So the communication style for a Ted talk is very different to the communication style of a military officer. So not briefing people, actually communicating, using my humor. Turns out I can be quite funny. Who knew? <laughs> uh, um, I think we're going to say, oh, are you? When, when does that happen? Um, <laughs> my, so uh, TEDx Southampton was 2021, uh, postponed clearly because of the pandemic. Um, the theme of the TEDx Southampton was human to human. Uh, we had some great stories and some great people, including, um, oh, what's the name of the lady that's uh, sailed uh, solo around the world? Oh, it'll come back to me. It'll come back to me in a moment. Um, But basically, I told the story of a sinking ship uh, that I was on in 2008 in the Royal Navy and what that has taught me about stress and resilience. That was the story that I told. Amazing. What we will do is put the link to that in the show notes. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Don't have a butcher's. Yes. But please tell us, without telling us the TED Talk, so people can, can go and listen to that, what was that like? being on a sinking ship flipping horrible yeah <laughs> um uh, what was it like in some respects you go into auto you know we'd all been taught so on board ship you have two roles uh, one is like your normal role like logistics officer and then we always have a if you like in crisis role and mine was yeah. a damage control officer and and obviously you're taught both of those roles and you're taught i mean we just done some operational sea training not long before actually it might have been about 
three or four months before where you pretend like something horrible has happened to the ship. So we don't ever enter these things like, oh, crap, what's this? What do I do now? Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's always a in the event of yeah. these are the things you do. Um, there's a motto in the military where you train as you fight. Uh, so invariably, you try and make the conditions as realistic as possible so that when you are then on a battlefield or in a sinking ship moment, you're as, a, you're as kind of anaesthetized as possible. Uh, <clears throat> we can't always go quite there because it's never quite the same. Mm -hmm. um, so in some respects, I went into auto. But in other respects, I was also looking at the ship going, ooh, we're getting a bit close. <laughs> we could be, we're about to go. Getting a bit close. I think I would have been going, oh, fuck. <laughs> Uh, well, yes, there was a bit of that. Sometimes um, it was very clear how how precarious our position was, um, you know. But that that is not a helpful response. No. <laughs> what did that do to for you emotionally? Oh, I'm pretty sure I had PTSD for a bit. Yeah. So what what did you do to to combat that? I didn't really. I just waited for it to go. I guess. I mean, it was never uh, awful, awful. Um, uh, it didn't, you know, have some of the catastrophic effects that PTSD can have. But definitely for about two years after the event, I couldn't talk about it without some sort of physical reaction. You know, my heart rate racing, my speech getting even faster than it is normally, my swearing getting far worse than it is normally, and that saying something. Um, you know, there was always a physiological response. How did that, well, go away? Just with time, I think. Just with time. Yeah. So what what did you learn from that that's given you that building of the foundations for the the dealing with the stress and building that resilience into turning that into a positive for what you do now? I think the key thing is knowing all of my stress symptoms. So I have a hypothesis, and again, I talk about this in the TED Talk, that says many of us walk around utterly oblivious to how stress is manifesting in us. Um, and if you listen to my TED Talk, I'll I talk about 12 different ways that my stress showed up on my body and in my body and in my mannerisms and behaviors. And I think sometimes we're not fully aware of that. Um, so therefore, we don't quite know what level of stress we're really at. And what I do think humans are pretty good at is going, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. and, and anyone outside of us is going, you're really not. But it almost, the more stressed you are, the less able to tell how stressed you are. That's yeah. my gut instinct. Um, and you get, you know, you get very much into functioning. So uh, it taught me how to spot my stress. And, and I guess almost like the canary in the mine, how to spot my stress before it got to that level to start to see the lower level manifestations before then the burnout, breakdown, fall over kind of way. And then the other one is knowing those early warning signs taking action much earlier than I might have done before and then knowing also then what to do about it. So in the TED Talks, you'll hear me talk about the fact that I believe that stress deserves diagnosis. Uh, I'm not a big believer of wandering up to people and going, here's my top 10 tips for you building your resilience. I don't, I don't buy that. Mm -hmm. Instead, what I try and encourage people to do is know themselves and know what works for them. Um, and that that's kind of what I've learned from the from the yeah. sinking ship as well. I think that's a lot a lot of it is knowing you and understanding you and the way you respond to things. And that's, that's a lot of what we do talk about on this podcast. And, you know, actually having the confidence in yourself to go, oh, hold on a minute, there's something not right here. And when you understand yourself better, you're better able to cope. Yes. So, and, and pick the strategy that's right for you rather than what, you know, like I say, you know, Janine from Accounts recommends, you know, what's right for you. Yeah. So whilst you're 
not an advocate of top 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 tips. There are certain ways and tips that you can give to people for them to start to recognize like the stress manifesting in mm. your your body, your behavior. What kind of things should people be looking for? In terms of stress manifestation. In terms of stress manifestation, yeah. Because I think um, that's a really important thing that people need to manage, especially after the past three years of absolute shit that people have been put through. Mm. The the levels of stress are so much higher and people don't realise it. So if you're true. able to share some things that people could be looking for, yeah. you could be, be a, being able to help on a different level. Yes. So I suppose the first thing that I really notice is almost, um, I call them sort of habits. Do you chew your fingernails? In my case, do you chew the skin around your fingers? Um, Do you, um, you've probably seen this, you know, do you do this with your pen? There there are some uh, ticks, tells, you know, something physical that shows up that shows a level of agitation. That's kind Mm -hmm. of point number one. So that's the physical. The second one is um, your propensity or ability to turn off, you know, switch off. Yeah. Uh, I think that diminishes the higher the stress goes up. So if you find yourself still opening the laptop on the weekend, uh, in my case, getting nagged by the other half, why are you doing that? Why are you looking at that? Why is your phone in your hand? Why, why are you answering that email? You know, I thought you didn't work on the weekends. You know, if you start to find that your day-to-day life is more and more work or stress related in terms of you know what are you physically doing is there creep um a real big thing for me is sleep quality uh and not everyone suffers with this but i'm an insomnia girl when i'm stressed uh not falling asleep that's dead fine and i know that loads of people will talk about things and again in the ted talk you know sleep hygiene and stuff like that but actually the sleep hygiene doesn't work if your brain is on fire mm. so so the key thing for me is if i start to see my sleep quality eroding that's something to pay attention to sleep's so so important um on my mastermind session on sunday i had a sleep um sleep expert sleep coach oh, come yeah. join us for a session because all of my mentees 3 months ago they all put their hand up and said, I have issues with sleep. Yes. And the difference that you can make, like you say, you can't, you can't just switch your brain off and you, you know, you can still go through the motions and have this, this brilliant routine and your brain still be awake because you're not actually processing or dealing with the things that are going on because you've not recognized it. But actually with having some kind of discipline and the sleep hygiene and some routine in the morning and, looking at what you're putting into your body you're better able to deal with the stresses that are occurring whilst you're awake yeah it's a real vicious circle isn't it yeah I'm into fucking sleep issues my entire life for as long as I can remember like since I was a child I have dream places I go to um reoccurring dreams I have sleep paralysis you name it it's insomnia It, it I, my house used to be my house is clean my house used to be so clean because I just get up and I'm like I can't fucking sleep what am I gonna do mm. so just start moving things and cleaning and like uh, arranging that so everything was like shit and more stressful because I wasn't sleeping 
So I found after the flood, there was one occasion I remember really clearly, I'd slept really badly because I was still suffering with a PTSD and I got into work and something happened and I just burst into tears. Now I'm not normally a crier, mm. but my level of emotional regulation was so depleted because of the sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, they use it for a form of torture for a reason, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that I wasn't able to even cope with the, with the slightest of life's bumps. Do you know what I mean? Um, the other thing I think that is really important. So I think there's something for me about getting at cause and symptoms. So yes, use yeah. the sleep hygiene to manage the symptoms of sleep, but ultimately that you need to get to the cause of what's causing you. Yeah. And the thing that causes my sleep challenges is when I fill my days so much, I don't have time to process. My brain goes, fine, block your diary, sweetheart, but we are going to process this thing and it's going to be at two o'clock in the morning. Dacor. So there's something about recognizing your brain will do what it needs to do, whether you fight it or not, whether you allow it to or not. Mm -hmm. The key thing is now I try and allow processing time during the day. So then it doesn't want to wake me up at two o'clock in the morning going, do you remember that thing that you chose not to put time in for? Well, it's mm -hmm. happening now. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. And quite poignant for me today. I've had back to back. Right. Who doesn't do that, right? Do you know what? I very rarely do because... I know that I need to download and decompress and process. Yeah. But like today, I, I was up early, had to get the gym in, I had to get to an appointment, had to get the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But I do know that once today's like complete at seven o'clock, I've got a couple of hours where I'll go, oh. Yes. But there used to be days where it would go to 10, 11, 12 o'clock mm. and then I'm awake till 5 a.m. and then I sleep till maybe half past six. Mm. And that doesn't benefit anybody. No. Like you know for yourself that if you're not sleeping right, you're not then performing well the next day. So what other things around that can you do to help manage those levels of sleep deprivation or stress levels to make sure that you're you know, at your best? So the key thing that I try and do, and again, these are only my recommendations. I've said this before, right? So this is yeah. what I do. It might be useful for some people. It may not work. So um, I try and get stuff out of my head. I'm a massive fan of a mind map. So, you know, sometimes you end up with quite a lot of moving plates. I try and commit them to paper. And then often when I can see them on the paper, I can then decide what I'm going to do about them. And more importantly, just that act of taking it from here yes. and putting it onto paper seems to make a huge amount of difference. Whiteboard. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Got all of that. Lists, the foolish. Um, the other thing I find quite helpful is I've got a notebook by my bed. Uh, so then if something comes up, I, you know, I've had some of my best ideas at two o'clock in the morning. Yes. Uh, but I can never remember them at six o'clock when the alarm goes off. Do you know what I mean? So sometimes I'll just commit them to paper and then I don't have to worry about it because otherwise I'll lay awake going, oh, my God, I'm bound to forget that. And that's a really great idea. Um, uh, what else? For me, it's about managing the noise in my head. It's less about, so, you know, the sleep hygiene, fine. I try not to have too many stimulants, caffeine before midday, all that kind of stuff. But actually, if I can control the noise, mm. I should be able to control the sleep a bit better. So what's the noise for you? Um, uh, how am I going to fit that in? Uh, <laughs> ironically, um, what am I going to do about that? Um, what shall I design for that? I wonder how that conversation went yesterday. I wonder what they thought of that presentation I gave. It's that sort of stuff. The stuff that we all think about that actually right. most people won't admit to. Yeah. And I think, uh, so one of my strengths is I'm quite reflective and that's great for improving performance. One of my strengths overplayed is I'm quite reflective and it can get a bit analysis paralysis and I will dial up some anxiety about a conversation I had that didn't go well. Like, so today I was involved in a group coaching session and I noticed that one of the participants, um, uh, 
responded quite emotionally to some of the feedback we were offering. Uh, and and that's playing on my mind a bit like you know how will that individual feel after that session will right. they be walking away now I can do nothing about that so giving it any more mental energy is an utter waste of time but sometimes there is something about us where we do worry about things uh you know where where's the next paycheck coming from uh April's looking quiet in my order book you know how do I feel it you know all those kind of things and everything from the who am I as a human to who am I as a business owner and how am I doing as a human and how am I doing as a business owner do you see those as two separate things? Well, uh, I think it's just topics. You know, am I a twat as a human and am I a failure as a business owner? Do you know what I mean? I mean, they're just kind of. It's actually a very good point because there are some absolute arseholes in the world who run very successful businesses. Right. So when it comes to that, in terms of that, somebody might be a shitty person, like you know, on a personal relationship level, but they're like a great leader. That's I'm not sure I buy that. I don't think those two things go hand in hand. No? So te- tell us why. Well, so in my experience, if you don't care about the people that you're leading, you will eventually come unstuck. You will not be able to leverage discretionary effort. They will not follow you into a crisis. They will not give you anything else over and above what their contract says they're going to do. Um, and they certainly won't keep you out of the shit. Yeah. So how do, you create, how, how do you cultivate a good leadership model person? So the first thing is they've got to care about being a good leader they've got to give a shit about what kind of leader they are so anyone that um uh either thinks they don't need to improve as a leader uh, or doesn't care they just want the job done please don't call me um uh um yeah so for me you've just got to care you've got to you've got to understand that uh, leadership has a really palpable effect on people's lives, right? So when I'm when I'm stood in front of a crowd of people, the first thing I say to them is, who here has got a horrible boss story? And guess what? Every single hand goes up, right? And then you say, you know, put yourself back there with that boss and palpably you're there. You can remember how you felt. You can remember what they said. You can remember what they did. You can remember how bad it was for you at the time. You know, that's the kind of impact we are having on people's lives. You don't get to do that as a leader you know you don't have the right to just if you like fuck people up and not care yeah. about it you just don't yeah. get that right so for me if you don't give a shit about what kind of leader you are then please don't be a leader absolutely right and if they because yeah, i always think do do the things that you love because life's too short to be miserable yes i used to do jobs because it paid the bills and do you know what? There are more important things to worry about, air quotes, for like this and you're not watching. <laughs> because worrying is a waste of energy. I, I, I genuinely, I very rarely worry about anything. I'll voice that there's a problem and then I'll instantly hunt for the solution. Yeah. Because worrying gets you nowhere. But I actually enjoy a challenge of solving a problem. Yes. So when it comes to leaders and like whether that's in an SME or a big corporate or even as a as a podcast host like that I, I'm a leader of I'm the leader of this, this podcast and I want to make sure that everybody listening gets good quality that they gain something from the guests that come on and I like to try to lead the conversation in a way that people are going to get the most out of it and also that mm. you enjoy having mm. the conversation. So I very much do care. And I think you're absolutely right there that, you know, you, you have to care as a leader of people because otherwise, like, what are you doing? 
I, I do understand that at times there are things to be achieved and the military is one place, mm-hmm. you know, where you could say that's in its extreme. Uh, you know, there is a thing um, on board a ship that as a damage control officer, I might have to make a decision to close a compartment and leave people in there for the sake of the ship. Mm-hmm. The question is not, does that caring for people stop you making the hard decisions and doing the hard things? It's do you do it in a way which leaves people brutalized as you go around doing it? And there are too many leaders out there who, as you say, are successful, but they are leaving a trail of brutalised people behind them. And that's, well, for me anyway, that's not something I would want to be remembered for. No. I like to dig, dig a little bit more into like running a ship because mm. I, I, I see that as a as quite a big metaphor for life as well. Okay. Like, you're, you're steering the ship. What is it? There's fucking shit in the, in the pandemic. Oh, we're all in the same boat. No, we're fucking not. We're all... In different boats in the same storm. But yes. how you steer your ship or your boat is what's going to make the difference between whether you make it through or not. Yes. So there's some, you know, if we if we take that metaphor, there's some advantages and disadvantages. Depending on the nature of the storm, the bigger the ship, the more likely you are to survive it than if you're a tiny little dinghy. So there are some advantages or disadvantages, if you like, by the boat you happen to be in. And we certainly saw that with, you know, single mums in a high rise flat with four kids uh, in the pandemic had a very different experience to uh, somebody with a four acre plot of land in the countryside. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A very different experience but I do think there is something about what do you do with the tools that you have that means yeah. no matter what boat you're in oh my god I think we might be stretching the metaphor now but you drive it as best as you can you know you make the most out of it certainly um I also think it's a sign of um just uh maybe how capable you are of thinking outside of the box so you you don't allow yourself to be constrained by your circumstances or by the size of your boat. What would you say to people that can't see outside of that? So uh, well, I get somebody who can. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Get get some outside help. Yes. So I think all of us at our time have ended up what I describe as cul-de-sacked. We've wandered down this road. We're stuck. All we can see is the brick wall. We can't see how high it is or how tall it is. And oftentimes, you know, do you remember like one of those Duracell bunnies when you set up and walk into a wall and all it would do is keep walking into the wall? You know, you need somebody to pick you up and pull you back. So then you can decide, well, where is the wall and where do I want to go next? So I would say this, wouldn't I, being a coach, that's the role of coaches. You know, we can help you see, pull you away from the wall and see where you want to go next. Mm-hmm. I think also. Um, Listen to people around you. I think loads of us get uh, overt and covert cues from the people around us, loved ones, professional colleagues, and that kind of stuff. The case is, you know, do you want to listen to it or not? A lot of people don't want to listen to it. But I love uh, seeing I love yeah. seeing the light in people when you they do and they yeah. finally get it. What what was it that so obviously that's one of the things that I love about what I do. What made you go into the coaching that you do now after having left the navy what was it about that specific this specific this specific area that made you think oh I love this I really want to help these people with this so I suppose it's a bit of my own experiences so um uh, people who hang out with me often will hear me use a couple of expressions one is an accidental leader I never intended to be a leader, but here I am. Um, I've never had any training. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm cuffing on a daily basis and hoping I don't get it wrong. 
So there's something about helping those people be less accidental. But the corollary of that is the accidental arsehole. Mm-hmm. I'm a really nice person normally, but the minute you dial up the stress and dial down my confidence, I'll behave in odd ways that probably turn me into a, uh, into a horrible boss. Mm. And, and actually, it's that group of people I particularly wanted to help because I observed that in my past, I've been a horrible boss, not because I didn't care, but because I let my stress and underconfidence get in my way um, and turn me into somebody that I wasn't very proud of and I didn't really like. So what I'm trying to help people do is take perfectly nice people and stop them turning into accidental assholes the minute they get a bit stressed. That's actually my passion. I fucking love that. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the, what, was there like a pivotal moment or a catalyst? Or like, was there a point where you were being an absolute fucking arsehole to someone else? You're like, whoa, hold on a minute. I need to change this and I need to help people not be like this. Um, I wish I would say that it was that in the moment, but regrettably, it's much more rear view mirror than that. So mm-hmm. I look back at some of my leadership experiences and some of them I'm very proud of and some of them I'm like, oh, you bellend. <laughs> Um, and, uh, at times it feels like there's more of the latter category than the former category. Um, that I've often, you... no, go on. No. Uh, well, uh, you know, I- I've watched other people be really successful leaders and, and thought, I wish I could have been a bit more like that. You know. So I think that puts you in a really good position to do what you're doing. Yes. Because you come from a place of, I know what it's like to be that, that person. And I know what's worked for me to be able to, to help you turn that around there's nothing oh worse I used to be a fucking arsehole too I, I absolutely absolutely was and I do hold my hands up to that and I'm glad that I had the people call me out on it when I was like at the worst because otherwise like like you said listen to the people around you like without that would have carried on and like who the fuck knows what I would have been doing right now but because yeah. I had those experiences and that life experience, and it's pushed me into a position of I made those mistakes, I addressed it, and turned that around, and things are so much better because of because of this. So I think that positions you perfectly for being able to help in the way that you do, and openly admitting I'm not proud of some of the decisions I made. I think there's a really interesting thing. So I think when people go uh, for a leadership coach or or some sort of coach, I think they're looking for what they perceive to be a perfect manifestation of whatever role that is. So if you're a business owner, you want to be coached by Alan Sugar, for example. What I do that's slightly different, and again, it's Marmite, some people will like this, some people won't, is I can do it from a position of empathy. I've been in your situation. I can do it from a position of learn vicariously you don't have to make the same mistakes I did because mm-hmm. here's where you're here's where you're headed if you don't change anything um I also think it makes me slightly more authentic as a leader because I'm not walking around going yes I've nailed this since I was 22 I've always been a fabulous leader learn from me you'll be amazing instead what I do is yeah so I once gave a performance management conversation to somebody who ran out of my office in tears yeah don't do it like that so, so for me it makes me me personally it feels a bit more authentic and perhaps a bit more accessible I, I completely agree. I would rather work with somebody that had been through through it that way than just absolutely, well, we came from a textbook. Yeah, that doesn't really work for me. Because no. the thing, I, I, I use these couple of expressions, you know, the first one is all labels are lies. So calling yourself a transformational leader, you will not be that all of the time. 
Uh, and the other thing is models are kind of wrong in some ways, in some contexts. You know, none of them are perfectly right. So trying to adhere yourself to a model in a textbook, I think it means it will always at some point be a little bit wrong. Yeah, I think sometimes you need to throw the textbooks out of the window. Right. Well, we said this actually in the flood. So um, during the operational sea training, they teach you how to deal with a uh, two incidents in the front of the ship and two incidents in the back of the ship. And then the result of the flood in 2008, we had nine throughout the ship. So, you know, there really was a case of, well, the textbook can't help me because it's only ever taught me to go two front, two back. Yeah. And I've got nine everywhere, you know. So there is an element of the textbooks will take you so far and then you've got a kind of launch from there. Yeah. Could you share a bit more about that and how you dealt with it? I think that will help a lot of people. <laughs> Dealing with throwing the textbook away. <laughs> um, well, ironically, you need a bit of confidence in yourself. Uh, you need a bit of um, belief that your training has taken you so far and that your natural ability to learn, ability to problem solve, ability to think in the moment will help you go the rest of the way. But myself and the other members of the, you know, the of the crew said, if you'd have said to us a couple of days before, said this thing's going to happen, uh, you know, it's going to go horribly wrong, but you're going to be perfectly fine and do okay. We'd have gone, oh no, I'd have been an, under the cover, you know, in my bedroom. Thanks very much. Uh, so we're often much more capable of things than we think we are. But I do think there's something about knowing that you have resources within you that you have no idea. I believe that we all have like confidence in us. It's just, uh, there's so much untapped potential in every yeah. human being. And it's, it's your choice whether you choose to use it or not. I met a yeah. lady on um, one of the mastermind retreats I was on uh, quite, a few, well, quite a few years ago now. And her story is absolutely phenomenal. And I've been, we agreed to have her as a guest on the podcast. It's not happened yet. So I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to bring that story. I'll let her tell that story. But she posted something uh, like the other day about confidence and how you choose to use it. And I was like, I completely see what you're saying because we do all have it in us. We have the, the confidence, we have the resilience, we have the stress management. It's whether we choose to use it and to tap into what is inside us. The trouble is, throughout life, we're not often taught how to utilize our skills in the or right way, in the right settings. Or, or, or trust or our own instincts. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to things like fuck the, the the ship is sinking, you were trained in the eventuality that that should happen. Whereas in the entrepreneurial world, you sold you sold the dream. You know, go out, do this, you'll make millions, and everything will be okay. But what about when the shit does hit the fan? Mm. And this is when people don't know how to lead their team that they've built, and they they don't know how to deal with the stress. And that's why I think it's important to have people like you, yes, to help to to overcome these things because you're not taught it no no and I think you know some people are better at listening to their gut instinct about what to do in certain situations and some people are less good at that and in which case they rely on other people to tell them yeah. and there are plenty as you well know there are plenty of business coaches and things like that out there perfectly willing to exploit those who are uncertain and won't listen to their guts for the sake of their buck and that, that just doesn't sit well with me. It's just it's just not okay. No. Like, do you know what's funny? No, it's not funny. I've said from I don't know how long, like my for my, my clients, my mentees, my coaches, whatever, whatever you want to call them, I call them my team. Like your success is my success. 
Mm-hmm. And my success is your success. Because one word of mouth is the, the best kind of referral you can ever get. But I want to see them succeed. And that then demonstrates to me that I'm doing the right things and I'm leading in the right way. And then I can pull on that what worked well and what didn't and where can I learn and grow. On um, our first Gerald, Gerald Ratner and Friends session today, Gerald said the same thing to the people that came on the call. Your mm. success is my success. And neither of us have spoken about that before. And I've known him five years. We've had a lot of conversations. So for I me mean, to see that there are people or coaches or programs out there that all they're all they're about is the bottom line mm. and I'm not one I don't want to slag people off but I want to steer people away from that and towards the right people which is why I like bringing people like yourself onto this podcast so that you can get in front of more people who might potentially need the, mm. the kind of help that they might not might not have even thought of yes I think that's true I think many uh, leaders often have a niggle that they're not doing things the right way but don't know what to do about that niggle. So what would you recommend to people for figuring out what, what is this niggle? How do I make it to be known for what it is? So the other expression I use a lot is I talk about a leadership shadow. What kind of shadow do you cast as a leader? Um, <clears throat> that for me is always the starting point because the nature of the shadow you cast as a leader is oftentimes the nature of the environment that you create around you and whether or not that generates success or not. So my first starting point with all of the leaders that I work with is get a 360. Ask people what they love about your leadership style and what they don't love about your leadership style. How does it make them feel? How does it make them succeed? Because when you've got that information, then you know what it is about your style that you might want to tweak. And that might answer the niggle. So if you feel like you're not quite getting the performance out of people that you expect, do a 360, get some feedback, actionable feedback, and then let's kind of work on it and see what you want to change and how you might change it. Feedback is the breakfast of champions. um, um, That was the the biggest phrase of my big training last week. Was it? Yes. Uh, it's the it's the second time I've done that course, but I really appreciated the feedback, so mm. I could improve. What would you say to people that don't like receiving feedback, but they know they need it? I think sometimes, uh, you know, negative feedback can feel quite difficult to hear, um, and particularly, ironically, the more underconfident you are, the more bruising it can feel. So. Uh, the key thing for me is get somebody to help you deal with it. So one of the things that I've often done with my uh, coaching clients is um, I become the letterbox for the feedback from, you know, peers, team members, leaders, et cetera. And I then present it in a way that doesn't smash them in the face. I can present it in a coaching way that is digestible. I can present it in a way that uh, might be easier for them to hear so they can do something with. So you and I both know that the quality of the feedback is partly down to what's the content and partly down to how it's delivered. So I could say to you uh, something uh, fabulous, but delivered in an offhand way, it feels less fabulous, right? Mm-hmm. So the key thing for me is you you know finding somebody that can help you access that feedback in a way which doesn't leave you feeling brutalized. You're talking about brutalized. You've used that word a few quite a few times. Mm. Um. I, I do pick up on these things in language. Like language fascinates me. What's been the worst thing that you've seen in terms of like someone being brutalized and that you've been able to help them with? Um sometimes it's um 
it's uh, individuals being pigeonholed in a way that doesn't feel right for them. So I'm currently working with some clients who are introverted leaders working in an environment which values extroverted leaders. Um, so being told that you're not authoritative enough, you're not, um, uh, I mean, if I was talking on another call earlier today, you don't have enough presence. Um, you know, some of these words actually can leave people feeling quite inadequate. Mm-hmm. And it's in its perception. It's it's one, you know, what makes a good leader? What makes the right leader? Is an extroverted style of leadership better than an introverted style of leadership question, you know? So there's something about that. Some of it, and actually there's a really good friend of mine, um, a fabulous chap who talks about uh, red and green traces and how in our day-to-day interactions, we will be leaving traces. Some of them will be positive, green. I'll come by and I'll go, I love that dress on you and I'll move on. It's it's a tiny thing, but for you, it will make your day, for example. Or red traces, oh, you're wearing that today, you know, moving on. And it's so minor, but the impact is not minor. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And all of us in all of our way will have been on the receiving end of those probably unintended I I make this joke actually when I was about 13 years old my sister and I were on a train and a woman that we didn't know an old woman that we didn't know came along to me and said you know you're not pretty because you're too fat this woman didn't know me from fucking Adam she just came out she said that on the train yes and she told my sister she was annoying um I mean don't get me wrong I'm sure at the time she was annoying but there is something about uh that you know who says it how they say it and in what context which can leave people quite physically scarred you know mentally or emotionally scarred um so whether it's telling somebody they're not good enough or they should be better or they should be this or just randomly you're too fat uh you know how did you deal with that what did you say well, unfortunately, in our family, we've got quite a vibrant sense of humour, so we turned it into a joke. So, you know, people walk past me and go, oh, you're not pretty, you're too fat. <laughs> Just move on again. You know what I mean? You kind of turn it into something that you, you kind of, it's a bit like um, nicknames or things like that. You kind of own it, you take it and you own it and go, well, I can't help you because I'm, I'm too fat. I'm not pretty enough. I'm too fat. Okay. So you use that to your advantage and use humour with it. Yeah, I, I take it. I own it. I decide how it gets used. That's a really powerful thing to do. And having the confidence in yourself to do that and turn that around is something I think a lot of people could do do, some, do with some help with. Yes. I'm sorry, I can't help you. I'm too extroverted. <laughs> I'm not, by the way. <laughs> I think you shared a lot of um, really, really useful stuff. I'll probably talk to you for hours and hours on end. I bet um, you say that to all of your guests. Though. I really, I actually do. <laughs> do you know why because I choose my community and I choose the people and I pick the guests that come on myself I have a lot of people ask me and I have a lot of emails come through but for me it's about finding the right people and like um what I was saying earlier on, on the call I was on earlier the community that I bring is so important and to have the right conversations and I want to have conversations with people that could last for for hours Mm. and I'm by me doing that I know that people listening thank you very much for listening and subscribing and that they'll enjoy it too Mm. yeah you're you're servicing the needs of your community aren't you you're safeguarding their experiences yeah Uh, and all I'm taking from that is I was handpicked so thanks yes you absolutely were And it's my absolute pleasure. So when it comes to helping people with their confidence, what yep. 
what tools do you give them to do so? Well, I might Obviously, give the a... title of this is Confidence Mastery. So Indeed. I think it depends on the individual. Yes. So um, some people are quite um, tool-based and some people are much more discursive or something like that. There's a couple of tools that I use specifically to build confidence. One is the Performance Pyramid, which talks about what knowledge and skills and attitudes do you need to have in order to be successful. Um, and you do a bit of an audit of yourself. In order to be a successful business owner, I need to know this, be able to do this, and I need to have this sort of attitude. Um, and then oftentimes what I find is uh, we have scored ourselves much lower than the reality. And I invite people to find a different evidence base upon which to make their deduction uh, by, I mean, one lady, for example, I asked her to collate all the positive feedback she'd received in the last year. And that, and that rather blew her away because in her mind, she'd taken the feedback and then parked it. And I, I invited her to t kind of turn it into something that was much more tangible and overt. I've had some people say, you know, what was your proudest moment? Oh, well, I worked on this uh, project in Japan and I got her to put a, a flag of Japan on her computer. And every time she looked at the flag of Japan, it reminded her of this success that she'd had. So it rather depends. So something tangible, um, but, but mainly oriented around what evidence base are you using to judge your performance? And is it solid? I like that a lot. I think that's a very important thing for everyone to remember. I like I like that visual. I'm quite a visual person too. I'm on a massive thing at the moment. So my screensaver on my phone is the last picture of my abs. So when I'm on the Stairmaster and I don't want to do it anymore, I'm like, I'm seeing it because it's there. All right, go harder, go harder. <laughs> I, I think many of us like visual references. I mean, they make all sorts of jokes, don't they? So put a picture of you at your fattest on the fridge and things like that. Um, but I do think there is something about a visual anchoring for whatever it is that you're trying to recall or remember or something like that. Yeah. So without it being top tips. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Go on. <laughs> what would be one thing that you would say is, the, the, okay, what's the best quality somebody can have to be a good leader? Probably empathy, emotional intelligence. So the ability to read what's happening in front of you. Yeah. And if somebody doesn't have that, how do they learn? It is tricky because, you know, it's one of those skills that you either can read people or you can't. Um, uh, can you learn emotional intelligence? Yeah, I think you can. I think it's dialing up your noticing, paying attention to what are you seeing in front of you? Are you seeing squirming, fidgeting, you know, blushing faces, all that kind of stuff? You know, what are you noticing in front of you and what might that be about? So dialing up your noticing. Yeah, paying attention. It's like active listening, isn't it? Not waiting yeah. for your turn to talk. Oh, yeah. I think we all know somebody, lots of people that do that. Oh, yeah. When, and especially when you said something and the conversation that then follows is nothing to do with what you've just said. <laughs> dear Lord, that's, if that isn't a sign somebody's not listening, I don't know what is. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, I find that a lot, actually. And then you just think, were you even listening? Or you have to repeat yourself. I was speaking to someone the other day. And I told them my four points for my, my goals for the year whilst they've got their phone in their hand. Yeah, and then they turned good. to me and then I had to repeat myself. Yeah, no, no, no I'm done already. I, I, and actually, most of us, the, there's a really powerful exercise you can do, a, a listening exercise where somebody pretends to not be listening. The anger that it generates, the disinterest it generates in continuing the conversation is hilarious. You know, literally you get people going, well, fine, I'm done. So, you know, if you want to wind somebody up, Make it look like you're not listening. 
Uh, please don't do that. <laughs> Intentionally, one. Well, it's quite a good experiment for listening. You know the power of it listening. Good, it is a good experiment. I will give you that. So, in the right environment, indeed. Right Mostly in a training classroom. Yes. So, where can people find you and work with you? Because I think you do some amazing stuff. So you can find me on LinkedIn under Joanna Hooper. I don't think there's too many of us, so that should be easy to find. Um, my business name. Uh, has a lot of meaning behind it, but it's freaking awful in an email. Uh, Limitless Peak Performance is my is my website. And yes, you're pretty certain that you'll never find Limitless Peak Performance in the same words on a website. Um, Tell us the story. Well, so it was part of my uh, perception of what life can be like. So, you know, I have done so much growing since the 18-year-old that left school, since the 40-year-old that left the Navy, since the 44-year-old that left full-time employment to then becoming a, an entrepreneur. Oh, I've just given my age away. Rude. Um, so I have this perception that all of us are capable of amazing things beyond our wildest imagination. Our opportunities for development, personal development are limitless. So that's where the limitless comes from. And we all have our own version of peak performance. So what you can do will not be what I can do and vice versa. But ultimately, we all have our own version of that. So in my business name was this idea that our opportunities for peak performance are limitless and personal. And if you look at my uh, logo, it's basically the symbol of infinity with some mountains and some gro- and some leaves growing in there to, to signify this kind of peak performance and limitless growth. So it all has huge amounts of meaning. Shit in an email. <laughs> Let's turn that around and have some confidence with it. <laughs> oh no, I'm quite, I'm quite, uh, I'm quite relaxed about it. Uh, I love the fact that my business has meaning. Uh, I accept the fact that it makes it very hard to put it in an email address. That's why we have clickable links in the show notes. <laughs> exactly. Thank the Lord. <laughs> the amount of misspellings of limitless you can get up with, I can imagine. Oh, I imagine. Um. I've really, really enjoyed having this conversation with you. I'm sure that we could probably do a part two and explore things a little deeper and a little further. As you wish. Um, So let's set that up for a bit later in the year. So thank you very much for joining me. But before we go, what would be one top tip? (laughs) What is it with the tips? I'm just laughing now. Um, What would be one thing that you would recommend people do on a... On, maybe even on a daily basis, one small thing they could do to help them increase their confidence? Um, that is an excellent point. Uh, create a folder uh, entitled uh, praise or recognition or positive feedback and take a butcher's at that once a day. I love that. I love I've that. actually so got you- one. I actually have, I think on my, on my own, um, you know, cause I have to walk my walk. Mm-hmm. I think I have something on here, which is called, um, positive praise or feedback or, oh yeah, in, there you go. Encouragement folder. Encouragement. And what I do is when I get a nice bit of positive feedback, I pop it in there. And every time I need a bit of a boost, I just go and have a look. That's an absolutely fantastic idea. And I would invite and encourage everybody listening to do that. Because I actually see how that would make a huge difference when you are feeling a bit shit, you're feeling like your confidence is low, but I mean, read all of those amazing things that phrase make a huge difference. So thank you very much for sharing that. We'll put all of your show notes, all of your show notes, all of your links and um, stuff and your TED Talk in the show notes. Oh, yes. So thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us. And I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Yeah, very much so. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And if you enjoyed this, please do share it with your friends, family, 
and other entrepreneurs or anybody that needs some help with leadership and confidence. Thank you very much. We'll be right back.